And so as we come to this chapter of Genesis, Genesis chapter 12, we come to a new section of the book of Genesis, and we begin, in a sense, a new study, the study of a life of a man, a man that we know by the name of Abraham. And so this is a major shift for us in our study of Genesis as we reach this point. Up till now, what we have essentially seen are events that describe for us and explain to us the origin of the world and its early history. Four events, really, that encapsulate the 12 chapters that we've studied. Creation, the fall, the flood, and then the Tower of Babel, where the people were dispersed and the languages were confounded and the nations uh, that are came to be. And so, really, those four major events make up the content of Genesis chapters 1 through 12. But as we now come to chapter 12, we come into the second section, the second of two sections uh, of the book of Genesis. And that is now the origin of the nation of Israel. And it's no longer the events of creation and of origins, but now it's the beginning of God's redemptive plan. And we're following now the lives of those that God used to bring forth the nation through whom he would bring forth the word of God and the Savior, Jesus Christ, into the world. And so the rest of the book of Genesis encapsulates the life of Abraham, and then his son Isaac, and then his son Jacob, and then his son Joseph, and really all of his brothers that made up the 12 patriarchs, the 12 tribal heads that became the 12 tribes of Israel. And so now we see the origin of God's redemptive plan as we begin studying the life of this man, uh, Abraham. Now, the next 14 chapters as we study Abraham's life from this point all the way till about the middle of chapter 25, what we have in front of us is not just a historical account. Now, we have that. We're told what happened. We know the facts of his life. But tucked inside this account of this man Abraham that's before us is probably some of the most valuable substance for the Christian in the New Testament era in terms of understanding God and our relationship with God. You say, well, how do we get that from Abraham? How can we say that this is some of the most valuable content to explain our relationship with God when you're looking at it with the backdrop of the whole Bible. And the reason is not just because of the things that it says, but because of who Abraham was and because of what God intended Abraham to be. When we read about Abraham in the New Testament book of Romans, the Apostle Paul is making a case for salvation by faith. He's talking about Jesus Christ and our knowing Christ. And he uses Abraham as an example for you and I, and he says these words. And I want you to just listen to what Paul says in Romans chapter 4, verse 13. He says, for the promise, speaking of the promise of God's salvation, for the promise that he should be heir of the world was not to Abraham or to his seed through the law, but through the righteousness of faith. Now, that's the righteousness that you and I have by faith in Jesus Christ. And Paul is saying that the faith that saves you and I in a New Testament context is the same faith that Abraham had in his Old Testament experience. He says, verse 14, For if they which are of the law be heirs, then faith is made void. And the promise made of no effect, because the law works wrath, for where no law is, there is no transgression. And now listen to verse 16. Therefore, in conclusion, it is of faith, salvation that is, that it might be by grace to the end that the promise might be sure, listen, to all the seed, not to that only which is of the law, that is the Jews, but to that also which is of the faith of Abraham, who is the father of us all. Do you hear those words? So what the Apostle Paul is saying in the context of our salvation that is by grace through faith, that it was Abraham's faith that saved him, 
And his faith and God's promise was the foundation of the relationship that Abraham had with God way back in the book of Genesis at the very beginning. And then Paul says this. He says that Abraham is the father of us all. What does he mean by that? He's not talking just of the Jews that could say that Abraham literally was their forefather. But he's saying this to the Roman church, to the Gentile body that has no DNA blood link to Abraham physically. And yet he's calling him our father. How can Abraham be our father? Because he's the father of them that believe on God through faith and are saved because of that faith that they have in God the Father. Now, if he's the father, then that makes us the children, right? And that is where we get our understanding. The book of Jude, in Jude, I believe it's, it's Jude, there's only one chapter, but it's in verse 3. Jude says something very amazing. He says that it was in his heart to write to the church concerning, watch the word, our common salvation. Do you see that word common right there? It's a common salvation that you and I have come into, that we have believed into, that we have embraced because of God through Jesus Christ. Meaning that we all share the same experience. We're all in the same family. And thus we have the same experiences. We know the same God. We have the same truth. And God is working the same things in our lives because it's a common salvation. So if Abraham is the father and we are the heirs and it's all a common salvation, then the apple doesn't fall far from the tree and our experiences are going to mirror those of Abraham's experiences because he's the father of them that believe by faith. And so the reason why the life of Abraham is of such value to us as we study it and go through it in the book of Genesis is because in it, we understand our own experiences. Everything that Abraham went through, we go through in one way or another. Maybe not exactly in the same context, but God is working the same things and using our experiences to produce in our lives and for our lives and through our lives the exact same things that he did with Abraham, who is the father of us all. And thus, it is an extremely valuable portion of Scripture to us. Now, I want to be careful and make sure that you hear me on this point when it comes to our understanding of Abraham and seeing our, our experience in the context of his. Much of what God did in the Old Testament... You know, through the lives of men like Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and Moses, and Daniel, and, you know, so on and so forth throughout the Old Testament. Much of that, those were real-life scenarios that happened historically to them, but they reflect or mirror spiritual truths, spiritual principles, and spiritual understandings in the life of a New Testament believer in a spiritual sense. Somebody said it like this one time, that for every Old Testament picture, there's a New Testament principle, meaning that the lives and experiences that actually happened in the Old Testament mirror spiritual truths for you and I. For instance, we're told that the crossing of the Red Sea, when the children of Israel passed through on dry land, that physical experience was a spiritual picture of our baptism when we pass through the waters, surviving the flood and coming up alive on the other side into salvation, saved from bondage in the world. When the manna, the bread, fell from heaven while the children of Israel were 40 years in the wilderness and physically sustained them, life coming from heaven miraculously and sustaining them, Jesus said that that manna, that bread that actually fell, was a picture spiritually of the Son of God, the bread of life, Jesus Christ, coming and giving his life for the world. That he said, I am the true bread of heaven. I am the bread of life. A physical picture mirroring a spiritual truth. The rock that Moses was commanded to hit with his staff so that water could pour out and nourish and refresh his people. Paul the Apostle says that that rock was a picture of Christ. And that when Moses struck the rock, it was a picture of Christ being smitten on the cross. 
And because Christ was smitten, the water of life spiritually now is poured out and we're partakers of the spirit of God, the living water of God. So Old Testament pictures translate into New Testament principles spiritually. And so as we look at the life of Abraham and we see his physical experiences that he went through, we overlay them on our own spiritual walk with God and we gain great insight into things that God is doing in our lives, doing for our lives, and ultimately seeking to do through our lives. And so Abraham's story, so valuable. Abraham, the father of us all. 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 11. The Apostle Paul says that these things happened to them as examples for us and then are written for our admonition. And so they happen to them, they teach us, and they're recorded to give us insight. And thus we come to the life of Abraham, and we see that his story is our story, as he is the father of faith. He blazed the trail that you and I find ourselves on even right now. He was the first one to bushwhack and push his way through and be led by God And wherever we are in our Christian walk, even right now, if you look down somewhere, you'll see the footprints of Father Abraham. He walked this same path that we are on right now, no matter where you are on it, no matter your progress. And so an amazing thing to examine and to look at. Well, Abraham's story begins where all of our stories begin. It's in chapter 11, picking up in verse 26. And that is that he was born into the world physically lost, without God, and without hope. That's where Abraham's story begins. Notice with me in Genesis chapter 11, verse 26. It says that Terah, that's Abram's father, Abram who will become Abraham, lived 70 years and he begat Abraham, Nahor, and Haran. Now these are the generations of Terah. Terah begat Abram, Nahor, and Haran, And Haran begat Lot. And Haran, one of the three sons, Abraham's brother, died before his father Terah in the land of his nativity in Ur of the Chaldees. And Abram and Nahor took them wives. The name of Abram's wife was Sarai. And the name of Nahor's wife was Milcah, the daughter of Haran, the father of Milcah, and the brother of Iscah. But Sarai was barren. She had no child. Now, the second half of Genesis chapter 11 is essentially the genealogy that brings us from Shem, the son of Noah, all the way down to Terah and ultimately Abram, who will become the subject of our study. And the genealogy follows 10 generations and is basically for us a link that connects the flood to what's going to happen next in God's redemptive plan. Now, one amazing thing about that genealogy is that when we consider it, what we realize is that there are really only four overlapping lives that link Adam all the way to Jacob, the grandson of Abram. Because Adam lived into Lamech's lifespan. Lamech was the father of Noah. Then Lamech lived into Shem's lifespan. He died right before the flood, but he had time with Shem, the son of Noah. And Shem lived all the way until Jacob's life. So Shem, the son of Noah, was still alive when Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob were all alive on the earth. That's an amazing thing to realize, isn't it? That there was only four links that brought Adam to Jacob. And part of the reason that God wanted us to know that and understand it is so that it would give us a sense of trust for the record that we're reading. It didn't have to pass through 20 successive generations to get to where it was recorded finally by Moses. But rather, it was handed down very carefully and first-handedly. And so that that genealogy brings us now to Abram. In the passage we read, essentially three vital pieces of information are given to us here. First of all, is that Abraham was one of three. He wasn't the firstborn, though he is listed first. When the names of offspring are listed, they're often listed according to prominence, not age. And Abraham was the greatest of the three. Haran died, so he's last. Nahor 
kind of passes off the scene, though he'll reappear later for a moment. But Abram becomes the subject of the story, and thus he's listed first. Secondly, we're told in this passage that the land of Abram's nativity was a place called Ur of the Chaldees. Now, Ur was a province of Babylon. It was a little bit southeast of where Babylon was situated prior to, and and then even after, the Tower of Babel and the dispersion. And it was really part of the cradle of civilization. It was a very wealthy and prominent place in that day. The archaeologist Spade has uncovered libraries and evidence of advancement in their technology, at least in the context of the era that they were living in. We know that it was the seat of idolatry, that they were worshipers of the moon god, and they were given over to idolatrous practices and worship. It was a very luxurious place and a very wealthy place, and that was the place of Abraham's inception, this province of Babylon called Ur of the Chaldees. And then finally, we're told in this short passage here, pivotal to the story, is that Abram was married to a woman whose name was Sarai, whose name means contentious, though her name will be changed a little bit later on. And we're told that she was barren. She could not have children, which also is a very pivotal and important part of the story. Well, it tells us in closing the chapter, it says that Terah, the father now of Abraham, took Abram, his son, and Lot, the son of Haran, his son's son, that would be Abraham's nephew, and Sarai, his daughter-in-law, and his son Abram's wife, and they went forth with them from Ur of the Chaldees to go into the land of Canaan, and they came unto Haran, and they dwelt there. So they take a journey to go into Canaan, which will one day become Israel, and they make it as far as Haran, which is about halfway, and it says that they dwelt there, and that then the days of Terah were 205 years and that then Terah died in Haran. And then the account of chapter 11 closes to where we'll pick up in chapter 12, just with Abraham, no longer any of his relatives or any of his kin. But what we realize about Abram's life right off the bat, and we can lay it over every one of our lives here tonight, is that Abraham was born historically, physically, naturally, a fallen man into a fallen world without any prior knowledge of God or experience or relationship with God. That is true of every single human being that is born into this planet as a descendant of Adam. The Bible says that every single one of us are born into this world without God, lost in the world. We're without light. We, like Abraham, are all born into a family. That family brings with it the baggage of that family's history, even as Abraham had in his family, a family of idol worshipers, a family that was much influenced by the culture and Ur of the Chaldees. He carried the ideals and the ideas of the place where he was born. And he had in him the old man of self, just as you and I do, and was apart from God. He didn't know God. There is no one that is born into this world knowing God. Sometimes I'll talk to people and I'll ask them in the church, I'll say, when did you first meet Jesus Christ? And their answer to me will be, well, I've always known him. And immediately my check engine light goes on and I wait for more. To see if they'll be a part of the story, well, they'll say, at least I thought I did. Until I hit a certain point when. And sometimes that moment in the story comes, but sometimes it doesn't. And I'll say, wait, you always knew him? Yeah, I've known God as long as I have been alive. I've just known God. And I'll say, well, there's something wrong with that. I don't want to judge. And certainly I don't know every experience you had. And maybe you're not sharing everything with me. But nobody can say that. Because nobody's born into this world in a relationship with God. You can be raised in a Christian home. And certainly that has a lot of advantages to it. But at some point, everyone's faith must become their own. We cannot walk in our parents' religion or on the convictions that we were brought up being taught. Everyone must have a personal encounter with God themselves. And thus Abraham was born lost, even as we are born into this world lost. But then something happened. And it's the second thing that we observe concerning Abraham, the father of faith, and what happened with him. And that is that there was a call 
specifically from God upon his life for God to come, I'm sorry, for Abraham to come to God. Notice in chapter 12, verse 1. It says, Now the Lord had said unto Abram, Get thee out of thy country, and from thy kindred, and from thy father's house, unto a land that I will show you. God made a personal appeal into Abram's life, gave him a call to salvation and separation, and a command to do three things. To separate, first of all, from his country, his place of nativity. Secondly, from his kindred, that would be his relatives, his friends and acquaintances. And then thirdly, even from his father's house, that would be his family, in order to go unto a land that he would show him. And thus God makes a call upon Abraham's life. Now what we're told in the book of Acts chapter 7, Stephen's sermon that he gave to the Sanhedrin just before he was martyred. He tells us that this call of God upon Abraham's life happened while Abram was still living in Ur of the Chaldees. Meaning this didn't happen in Haran, where they had been halfway between the two places. But this call from God came while he was still in Babylon, living in the setting that he was in right there. What does that mean? It means that while Abram was in his lost state, God came into the picture in Abraham's existence. Something began to stir within his heart. A realization that all that he had, the experience, the education, the wealth, the worship, the superstition of the gods of Babylon, that there was something more, there was something deeper, there was something greater, there was a gnawing though we're not told exactly what it is, if you know Jesus Christ here tonight, you know a little bit of something of what I'm talking about. There was an inward call, something aching within Abraham's life that made him seek for something more than what he was experiencing in Babylon. We're told what it is in Hebrews chapter 12. In verse 8, Concerning Abraham, it says, By faith, Abraham, when he was called to go out into a place which he should after receive for an inheritance, obeyed, and he went out not knowing where he went. Then down in verse 13, it says that these all died in faith, not having yet received the promises, but having seen them afar off and were persuaded of them, and embraced them, listen, and confessed that they were strangers and pilgrims on the earth. For they that say such things declare plainly that they seek a country. Abraham was looking for something. What was it that he was looking for? We're told in verse 16. He says, but now they desire a better country, that is, a heavenly one, Wherefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared for them a city. There was something that was stirring in the heart of Abraham that he realized there's got to be something that lasts. Everything that I have, as good as it is, every experience that I've had, as happy or as memorable or as prosperous as they've been, Every hope that I have in the context of this life, it came into the realization of this man Abraham that all of it was temporary. And no matter what he experienced or acquired on this side of heaven, one day he would have to lay it down and he wouldn't be able to take it with him where he went. And there was a gnawing, drawing, longing in his heart for something that was lasting. And it led him to the point where he could see through the emptiness of the idols of Babylon, the pleasures of Babylon, the promise of Babylon. And he was seeking for something eternal that would be worth leaving everything else to obtain. That was the inner call of God upon Abraham's heart to put a drawing in him for the true and the living God. John chapter 6 verse 44 Jesus said these words. He said, no one can come to me except the Father draw him. 
And thus, while Abraham was lost in Babylon, God began to draw him by pulling the strings of his heart and make him realize that there was something more. And God does that to every single person that will one day find themselves in heaven. They go from being lost without God and without hope in the world to having that gnawing, aching conviction where God is drawing them to faith in Jesus Christ. You say, how does that happen? It can happen differently for different people. For some people, God uses circumstances. I know that's what he did with me. He made circumstance after circumstance fall the wrong way in my life to the point where I would say, God, there's got to be something more. And he got my attention through circumstances, things happening that woke me up to my condition. Other people, it's a an emptiness, kind of what we get the sense happened to Abraham, that he wanted something lasting, something that he was longing for. That was my wife's story, if you hear her testimony, that she had it pretty good. She had a great family life. She was socially gifted and accepted, and everything was going pretty well, but there was something inside that told her that there, there was more. And no matter what she could have, it could never satisfy, and she was being drawn to God through the emptiness, the deep emptiness that was within her. For others, it's an overwhelming sense of guilt and condemnation for their sins. What the Bible calls conviction. They come under such a weight of conviction that no matter what they do, they can't feel clean. And they're driven by their defilement and their sin to seek out and search for some way of being free from the yoke and the burden of that heaviness. God draws those whom he's seeking to save and he puts in them a call. What's the call? The call is come out to Abraham from your country. That is the world that you were born into the world and its ideals, the influence of the society, the things that the world in your world holds dear, its values and virtues come out of it. Second of all, from your kindred, that would be the things that morally drive a person, the standards the behaviors, the reasonings behind why we do what we do come out of it. And then thirdly, from your father's house. Now, that call isn't literal to you and I. For Abraham it was. But for you and I in the New Testament context, it's saying come out of the house of the old man, out of your old man. Who's that? Who's our father after the flesh? It's Adam. To die to yourself, to leave self and the flesh and the old life behind for the sake of laying hold on that which is new and that which is complete and that which is eternal forever. And so God called Abraham to come out and to be separate. It's the same call that God gives to you and I. In 2 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 16, the Apostle Paul says this. He says, what agreement does the temple of God have with idols? For you are the temple of the living God. As God has said, I will dwell in them and walk in them and, they will, and I will be their God and they will be my people. Wherefore, come out from among them and be ye separate, says the Lord, and touch not the unclean thing and I will receive you and will be a father unto you, and you shall be my sons and daughters, says the Lord Almighty. God calls every one of us unto a life of separation, that we're to separate from the old ways. The Christian has three enemies. The world, that is the world system that's governed by Satan and its ideals and ways. The devil, which is the one who infuses the world with its standards and ways, and its temptations and sins and snares. And also thirdly, the flesh. That is the old nature that is given to the things of the sinful world and the sinful devil. Those are the three enemies of the Christian life. And God calls everyone that he calls to separate from those three things. And to be completely belonging to him. You say, well, if I separate from that, then what else is there? Am I supposed to live a monastic life? Do I just put on a robe and live on a hill? Like, what am I supposed to do if I separate from the world and from its ideals and from, what do I do? The answer, Romans 1.1, 1, 1, Paul said this. He said, Paul called to be an apostle 
of Jesus Christ separated unto the gospel of God. Do you see that word unto right there? See, it isn't just that we're called to separate from the things of the world and the flesh and the devil, but we're called to be separated unto God for him and for his purposes. And that makes all the difference in the world. Because if we're just separated from the world, but not separated unto something, then our lives are empty and vain. They're void. They're useless. But God is calling us to himself. And the separation is unto him. And thus we're separated unto God. And so the call to every one of us is to be separate, sanctified completely unto God. Now, interestingly, there's a pause in the story that's not given in chapter 12, but was actually given at the end of chapter 11. We learn here that the call went to Abraham to leave while he was in Ur. He was to leave Ur. He was to leave his friends and relatives. And he was to separate even from his father's house and his family. For Abraham, it was going to be him and God. But that's not exactly what happened, is it? In chapter 11, at the very end, it tells us that Terah, Abraham's father, took Abraham and Lot... And they all went, and they came as far as Haran, and they stopped right there. Abraham, because of the influence of his father, didn't fulfill or completely obey the command that God had given him to come apart and be separate. He had gone to a certain point, but he stopped at that point until Terah, his father, died. And it wasn't until after the death of his father that he then progressed into the place that God called him. You say, what's the significance of that? I find that that happens to a lot of people that are called by God into this relationship. He says, separate. And what they do is they say, okay, I'll leave my hometown. I'll leave the world. But my kindred, my father's house, maybe not yet. I'll come as far as Haran and I'll fulfill half of what you say, God but I don't know if I can go all in at this time. I can't give up everything. I don't even know what that would look like or what it's going to mean. What's amazing to me here is that God does not meet with Abraham nor fulfill the purpose and plan that God had for his life until Abraham completely surrendered and came all the way into obedience what God had called him to do. How many people have come as far as Haran in their separation unto the things of God? Interesting, isn't it? Heron actually means barren. And that's the kind of life that it is. To come partially out and not to come completely in is to live a barren life. In the New Testament context, it would be like somebody joining a church, but yet never coming to Christ and being fully born again. They add religion or add Christ in some way to who they are but they don't make a break from the old man or the old ways completely. They reform maybe some of their behavior, but they never come fully into complete faith and trust in Jesus Christ for their full salvation. They stay in Haran. And Abraham stayed in Haran until the old man died. And it wasn't until the old man died that he then fulfilled the command of God, and it wasn't until then that God then began to work in Abraham's life, the thing that God was seeking to work in Abraham's life. What I've noticed over the years is that people that go to Haran are the people that ultimately one day say, I tried God and God didn't work. I tried the Christian thing and the Christian thing let me down. God didn't fulfill his promise. It wasn't for me. But did you come all the way into the land? Because the Bible says that God doesn't fail. That he's able to keep that which is committed unto him. And he finishes the work that he began. God kept his side of things. What amazes me here is that God waited for Abraham and didn't give up on him when Abraham didn't fulfill at the beginning what it was that God had called him to do. Are you dwelling in Haran tonight? There was no progress in Abraham's life until he came fully into the plan that God had for him. Well, now that he does, now God reveals to Abraham the plan that he has for his life. And it's a sevenfold promise that God gives to Abraham. Notice with me in verse 2. God says that I will make of you a great nation, number one. 
And I will bless you, number two. Actually, that's number three. Number one is that he'll have a land. That's in verse one. Number two is that he'll be a great nation. Number three, I will bless thee. Number four, I will make your name great and you shall be a blessing. Number five, I will bless them that bless you and curse him that curses you. And number six, in you shall all families of the earth be blessed. And so a sevenfold promise that God gave to Abraham that was God's plan for Abraham's life. Number one, God said, I'm going to give you this land, the land of Canaan. A promise that we know was fulfilled by God, the borders of Canaan becoming the borders of Israel, the descendants of Abram. God kept his promise in giving them the land. Secondly, God says that he will make of Abraham a great nation. And absolutely we know that God has made of Abraham's descendants a great nation. When we look at the place that Israel has had in world history and the place that they occupy even unto this day, we know that there has never been a greater nation than the nation of Israel. I found this essay that was written by Mark Twain, who was not a Jew, but he wrote this concerning the Jews. He was intrigued by the Jews. He wrote quite a few things about them. But he says this. He says, if the statistics are right, the Jews constitute but 1% of the human race. It suggests a nebulous, dim puff of stardust lost in the blaze of the Milky Way. Properly, the Jew ought hardly to be heard of, but he is heard of, has always been heard of. He is as prominent on the planet as any other people, and his commercial importance is extravagantly out of proportion to the smallness of his bulk. His contributions to the world's list of great names in literature, science, art, music, finance, medicine, and abstruse learning are also a way out of proportion to the weakness of his numbers. He has made a marvelous fight in the world in all the ages. He has done it with his hands tied behind him. He could be vain of himself and be excused for it. The Egyptian, the Babylonian, the Persian rose filled the planet with sound and splendor, then faded to dream stuff and passed away. The Greek and the Roman followed and made a vast noise, and they're gone. Other peoples have sprung up and held their torch high for a time, but it burned out, and they sit in twilight now or have vanished. The Jew saw them all, beat them all, and is now what he always was. Exhibiting no decadence, no infirmities of age, no weakening of his parts, no slowing of his energies, no dulling of his alert and aggressive mind. All things are mortal but the Jew. All other forces pass, but he remains. What is the secret of his immortality? I will tell you, Mr. Twain. The secret of his immortality is a promise that was given to Abraham that I will make of thee a great nation. He says furthermore to Abraham that I will bless thee. The idea behind a blessing is that Abraham would be multiplied. When Jesus took the loaves and fishes that were brought to him on a hillside, it says that he took them, he broke them, and he blessed them, and then he gave them to the multitude, and the loaves and fishes were multiplied to feed the company of 5,000 men with 12 basketfuls of fragments left over. God giving a promise to Abraham that he would be blessed. He says, I will make your name great. I don't think besides Jesus Christ there has ever been a greater name in the planet that has lasted and endured and permeated as many cultures as the name of Abraham. And he says that you will be a blessing. Your presence, your influence, your person will be a benefit to those whom you come in contact with. He says, I will bless them that bless you, and I will curse him that curses you. It was true in Abram's life, and it has been true of Abraham's descendants ever since. That God has blessed every person, nation, industry, or influence that has blessed the Jew, and God has cursed the same that has done cursing unto Israel. And he says, finally, that in you, Abram, 
shall all the families or nations of the earth be blessed. And that has absolutely been fulfilled in that the descendants of Abraham have given to the world two of its most priceless treasures, the word of God and the Christ of God, Jesus Christ coming through the seed of Abraham, the lineage of Abraham. And thus God fulfilled the promise that he gave to Abraham at the very beginning before Abraham had even taken one step And seeing the fulfillment of it, God kept it all. You say, well, what in the world does that have to do with you and me and our experience with God in our present time? Paul wrote to the Galatian church. It's in Galatians chapter 3, verse 13. And I love this verse. And I hope you'll highlight it in your mind. Paul said that Christ has redeemed us from the curse of the law being made a curse for us. For it is written, cursed is everyone that hangs on a tree. That, here's the reason, the blessing of Abraham might come on the Gentiles through Jesus Christ. That we might receive the promise of the Spirit through faith. In other words, the same blessing that God gave to Abraham in a physical and literal sense is now the birthright of every child of God in Jesus Christ In a spiritual sense. Meaning that this promise has spiritual application to you and I. God has promised you and I a land. This land of the Christian life. The land that we call the land of promise. The New Testament fulfillment of it is the life that God has laid out before us in the spirit. And the Christian life is a lot like a land, isn't it? We take territory. We discover the things of God. We occupy and possess his promises, his person and his ways. We relate with his people and we're linked with them societally and culturally. The land is before us. It's given to us. It's a great land. It begins here on earth and it extends eternally into heaven, this land of promise that's been given to us. God also promises that he's going to make of us a great nation. What is a nation? A nation is nothing more than a man who is expanded and spread out and his influence becomes great. Jesus said to you and I that he will give us life and life more abundantly. And thus as God begins to work in our lives, he begins to expand our influence. He begins to expand our reach and the facets of our life. And we become, as it were, a great nation that never dies. It just keeps going. It just rolls onward and onward and onward. A nation is the continued expanded life of a man or of a woman. And what the promise is, is that in Christ, our life will take on universal proportions. And that's what God does within our lives as we begin to spread out in him and grow. He says also concerning us that he will bless us. That God has a plan and a desire and a will to bless each one of our lives. It's our birthright. It's something that he'll fulfill for each one of us. He says that he will make our name great and that we will be a blessing. That he's going to expand our influence to the place of greatness and cause us to be used in the lives of others to bless them as well. He says, I'll bless them that bless you and curse him that curses you. Isn't that the heart of every parent for their child? And God looks after us in that same way. And then finally, he says, in you shall all the families of the earth be blessed. And that's true. We're in Jesus Christ. And God has made us a city on a hill, and he's made us a blessing to all that we come in contact with. And as much as this was fulfilled in Abraham, literally, it is fulfilled in us spiritually. And so God gives a promise to Abraham. So what have we seen thus far? Abraham was lost. Abraham was called, and he responded to that call, and then Abraham was given a promise. God had a plan and a purpose for his life that was exceedingly abundantly above all that he could ask, think, or imagine. Well, from there now, God begins to show Abraham what's in front of him. Notice in verse 4, and we're almost done. He says, so Abraham departed, and the Lord, as the Lord had spoken to him, And Lot went with him, and Abram was 75 years old when he departed out of Haran. And so Abraham took Sarai, his wife, and Lot, his brother's son, and all their substance that they had gathered and the souls that they had gotten in Haran. And they went forth to go into the land of Canaan, and into the land of Canaan they came. 
And Abraham passed through the land unto the place of Shechem, unto the plain of Morah, and the Canaanite was then in the land. And so God takes Abram into the land, and Abraham begins to see what one day will be his as he looks around and he stands and he sees the thing that God was going to give to him. The first thing that God does with Abraham now that he's in the land is God gives him a vision for what one day would be his. He stands in the valley of Shechem. And he sees the place where one day the blessings and cursings will be shouted back and forth between Mount Ebal and Mount Gerizim. He sees the oak tree where Jacob would consecrate his family and get his life right with the God whom he would serve. He sees the plain where Gideon would smite the Midianites and 100,000 men would fall with 300 opposing. He sees the place of Shiloh where the tabernacle would one day stand and he sees a vision of things that don't even exist as of yet as God begins to take him through the land. He knew it was his and yet none of it as of yet was truly his. When you and I are born again and we come into this land, God does something very similar. I don't know if you remember. I don't know if it was like this for you. But I remember what it was like for me when I first came to know the Lord Jesus coming out of the world, being lost, and now coming into this vast light of truth and seeing in the word of God. And I could see this whole land before me before as any, of yet, any of it was mine. I would read about joy unspeakable or full of glory, and I knew nothing of the experience of it. But I would see it, and, and I knew somehow deep inside that it was already mine, though I hadn't tasted of it yet. I could see myself standing on the chest of Goliath and smiting off the head of my enemies when as yet the reality was as I felt like I was being choked out by the very enemies that one day I would stand upon and defeat. But it was so real to me to recognize and realize what was before me, this land that God had put out. And that's what God does for each one of us. He gives us a vision of what is ours and what one day yet will be. And he does it for Abraham here. There is a Canaan for the people of God. And thus Abraham finally, in verses 7 and 8, consecrates his life completely unto God. It says that the Lord appeared unto Abram. And he said, unto thy seed will I give this land. And there he built an altar unto the Lord who appeared unto him. And he removed from thence unto a mountain on the east of Bethel. And he pitched his tent, having Bethel, which means house of God, on the west, and Hai, which means place of ruins, on the east. Fitting picture, isn't it? He's halfway between the house of God and the place of ruins. And there he built an altar unto the Lord, and he called upon the name of the Lord. The altar in Abram's life represents his consecration. He has come to a point now where he trusts in the living God, and he's ready to put his full faith and trust in him. And he calls upon his name for salvation. But it's interesting that as we close the passage, Abram finds himself in the place, standing where he can see where he came from, the place of ruins, and he can see where he's going, the house of God. And as we close and we look at the beginning of this great man Abraham and we consider his life, I ask you tonight, as you sit here and you hear the word of God, where are you dwelling? Are you still dwelling in Ur of the Chaldees? Have you yet, come, yet to come to that place of realizing that there's a true and living God? That there's something more than what this world can offer? That the vanity, the emptiness, the education, the treasures, the temporary pleasures, that they are nothing but a fleeting and vanishing vapor that will leave you empty and completely unsatisfied? I ask you tonight, you that dwell in Ur, can you hear the conviction, the voice of the Spirit of God, can you hear the drawing of him calling you and saying to you, come to me, you that labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest? Can you hear his voice? Can you hear it, that there's something more eternal? Are you dwelling in Ur of the Chaldees? For some tonight I ask, are you dwelling perhaps in Haran? Are you living in that place where you've come out and you've come halfway? You come to church, you hear the things of God, you maybe even like the things of God, but you have yet to fully separate to fully put behind you the world, the influences of the world, the old ways, the old habits, the old things, the old man that's deceitful and corrupt according to its lusts. 
You're living in Haran, and yet it's barren, and you say, I tried the God thing, and it didn't work for me. Are you dwelling in Canaan tonight? Do you see the land that God has promised you? Are you walking in it? Are you taking it? Are the, is the territory being mapped out? Are the borders being expanded? Is there more happening? Is the blessing of Abraham coming upon your life by faith in Jesus Christ? Is it real? Is it happening? Are you dwelling tonight halfway between Bethel and Hai, the place of ruins and the house of God? You've come to a stand. There's a stagnancy in your Christian life. I pray that tonight you would hear the voice of God saying before you, there's a Canaan. There's a Canaan. There's a promised land. There's a life. There's a blessing. There's a reality. There's a calling. There's a purpose. It's bigger than you are. It outlives your life in this world. It ripples into eternity. It never ends. It never fades away. Father, we thank you tonight for your word. We thank you, Lord, that you laid before us the testimony of this man for what you did in him and what it illustrates in pictures for us. We thank you for our own experience, O oh God that even as we sit here and meditate on these things, we can recognize, oh God, that it's you. It's you that has called us. It's you that reached into our lives at the darkest place. It's you that's yet calling us even now to come deeper, to come further, to come all the way in. We thank you for who you are, oh God. And Lord, I pray tonight for each one of us. You know right where we are and right what we need. And I pray, Father, that we would move, that we would pick up our tent stakes, that we'd move from the place that we were, and that we would possess all that you have for us. So hear our heart tonight, O oh God. And I pray that each of us, Lord, tonight might build an altar, be it just in our mind, and that before you we would say, God, I trust you. God, I believe. God, I long to separate from the old, and I want to be completely planted in the new. So help me, lead me, change me, forgive me, consecrate my life unto you. O oh Lord, it's our prayer and desire tonight. Take these things, O oh Lord, make them live. Take our lives, make them burn, O oh God. Light a fire in us again. We ask it in Jesus' name. Let's stand together, shall we?